Welcome back to Other Tone. Scott, what's the word, man? Not much, not much. Um, this is an episode that I'm really excited about. This started from me sending an article about Stefan Thomas, who is this Bitcoin pioneer developer who the New York Times ran an article about that he had $250 million locked away on a uh, hard drive, but he doesn't know how the password to get in there to get his money. And the way the, the way the hard drive works is you only get 10 attempts before it basically explodes. So this is like a movie right now. He's yes. already attempted eight times, and he only has two attempts left before he just loses $250 million. Like, no problem. Oh, my God. So we thought it would be a good idea to bring Mark Cuban on, who everybody obviously knows who Mark Cuban is. He's a billionaire entrepreneur, Shark Tank, owns the Dallas Mavs. And we got a chance to kind of pick their brain about, you know, the future of uh, Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah, this was a good one, man. I think you guys are going to love this episode. This one is a little bit different than most of the episodes that we've done on the show, but I love that we can go here. Yes, sir. All right, everybody. This is Mark Cuban and Stefan Thomas on Other Tone. Other Tone, Tone, Tone. Other Tone, Tone, Tone. Stefan, what's up, bro? How are you? How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Great, great. Nice to meet you, brother. For the people who don't know, we're here with Mark Cuban and Stefan Thomas. And I shared an article with Pharrell and Fam, you know, that was about how you have $220 million locked up on a hard drive that you only get 10 attempts to do. And you've done eight and you only have two left. And I, it, it got us talking like I've been talking to Pharrell about Bitcoin for a while, but we are no experts. I think maybe you could explain, you know, just to give us some context before we really jump into some of the other parts of the discussion of how it happened, what's going on and where we stand today. Best to start at the beginning. Like my background is I um, grew up as a bit of a computer nerd. And so I uh, baited my career to kind of uh, be a developer. And I, I noticed that there was a lot of friction just trying to get people paid. Like we had one designer in Pakistan. That's sort of the example that's sort of clearest in my head. And, um, you know, we were paying them through a prepaid debit card. So we basically charge a debit card and then they would go out and spend it. Um, and it was one of my favorite people to work for. But one day that company we were using to fund that debit card, they said, like, Pakistan is now too high risk. Um, we're going to pull out of there. Um, and so, you know, we started looking around for an alternative. Like there was like Western Union, but they would charge like, I think it would feel something like 27 percent. Um, and so at the end of the day, like my boss uh, at the time told me, like, OK, go ahead and, and uh, you know, work with this other person in, in India and let, let that guy know that we're not going to be hiring him back for the next job. And so. I, you know, remember having that conversation and thinking like, it's such a dumb reason to get fired, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so that sort of put that idea in my head that like, maybe there's something wrong with the payment system, the financial system. And fast forward to 2010, I hear about Bitcoin and it's sort of the first time that it feels like as an individual developer, you can sort of mess with the financial system and kind of like have potentially an impact on how people do payments and things like that. And so that immediately was interesting to me, if nothing else. Um, and they had a bounty out for making an animated video. Um, and so I got involved as a developer, but I also um, had a friend who was um, uh, studying motion graphics. And so I asked him like, hey, would you like to work with me on like a video that explains Bitcoin? 
And so we made the video, we released it. Um, and then for that, we won a bounty. There was a bounty of 9,052 Bitcoins. Um, I used 2,000 Bitcoins for the expenses, which at the time would have been like, you know, it was like $2, one to $2, something like that was the price of Bitcoin. And so it was just enough to like pay everyone at friendship rates. And then I had 7,000 Bitcoins left over. And so I kind of put it aside. I, I donated some uh, 50 Bitcoins to somebody who was doing like a road trip across the US using only Bitcoin. Um, and so it was sort of like meant as like something just to help the community, like a fund to help the community. And so then one day I realized I had lost access. And so that's kind of the backstory of that, those Bitcoins. Mm. Stefan, you have to stop losing things. <laughs> that's the first thing you you might be you might be surprised to hear that since then i've been very careful with that <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> right finding it's so much more um it's it's just so much more like enriching to the life life's experience um i'm on here with um our brother mark cuban and i can't help but think man there should be there needs to be a philanthropy that's tied to Bitcoin for cultures. If we would think about currency differently than we do, right? Right now, currency basically, um, it essentially uh, establishes what we feel like, what we connect value to, right? But it's never the right things, right? Like time and money, love, respect, those are the things that you earn, Right. You don't just give them away. Right. Um, but if you think about it, if if you were to like broaden that kind of mentality a little bit and just think about all the social impact that could be done with a system like this, that's when I feel like it would get all the noise in the world, you know, because there'd be a lot of people who, you know, don't want to see it work for the minorities, which would make it the loudest thing in the room. I'm saying if I was Bitcoin, that's what I would do. I'd go say, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to create a Bitcoin for this black entrepreneurial endeavor or I'm going to do it for uh, undocumented workers. You know what I'm saying? And all of a sudden, Bitcoin would explode. You know, it's funny, uh, Brown, I tweeted something like that. I was just messing with somebody. And I said, you know what? If if Bitcoin gets to a million and then we uh, break it all up in these little units called Satoshis. Then I'll give a hundred, at least a hundred Satoshis to everybody in the country because the missing link in a lot of respects is the, one of the reasons why you get such a, um, a separation between the haves and have nots is that people that are just working by the hour don't have jobs. They don't have appreciable assets. And Bitcoin, like when Stefan was, was doing his thing, you know, it was trying to be a currency. And then there's a lot of changes that came to Bitcoin. And now it's more of a store of value. It's not really something you spend. It's something that, you know, they yeah. call it hodling, holding on for dear life. And so it becomes a store of value. And, you know, whether it's uh, Bitcoin or some of the other um, cryptos that are out there, there's a way you can get it to people and let them hold on to it and let it appreciate Um and it, it's certainly something that's being discussed for sure. We should do a cryptocurrency for undocumented workers. I'm just telling you right now, there's so many people in this country and around the world that want to see them win. They, they, they'd invest. 
they get behind it. They get in a system like that, right? And then there's so many naysayers that would be so pissed off. It's like the greatest, like, um, it'd be like the greatest, like, marketing ever. There's a lot of people trying to do this thing. They have these things called non-fungible tokens, right? Where artists can put their artwork up and create digital um, representations of their work. And they have, they have value, right? Yeah. And so what's changing is, like part of the problem, and you hit the nail on the head, is that that grind for currency is hard because you're always working for somebody else to get it. But, you know, trying to create a different type of banking system where things of value can be connected and distributed digitally and hold their value, that starts to change the game. Now, you got to get everybody to buy or at least a, enough people to buy in for those tokens or crypto, whatever it is, you know, NFT, whatever it may be, to increase in value. Um, but, you know, there's a chance, you know, it, it's not inconceivable that it can happen. That That's what makes it it, it makes it interesting about doing it with uh, musicians or artists like, you know, I have a friend who's a painter who sells his work for like it goes at auction for, you know, five million dollars and there's other art living artists who do the same but he doesn't see any of that money from the auction it goes to the person who originally bought his work and uh the person after him and the uh auction houses that are selling it it would be amazing if there was some sort of transaction fee every single time that an artist who actually makes something was able to participate let me tell you what i did today so there's a place called um openc.io and another place called Rarible.io. So I have a company, MCEX, where we just do experimental art, experimental stuff, right? And we hire these different artists to do crazy stuff. So we, we have this walk-up thing at a Mavs game, and I was messing with it. So I did something called minting, which I took one of our video files, uploaded it, and, load, and put it up there and sold $3,000 worth at 25 bucks a pop. But to answer your question even more, Part of the deal is when you do it, your art, your art, your music, whatever it be, um, digitally, you get to set an amount that you that the artist gets every time it's resold on the marketplace. So going forward, and th my little thing that we did has been resold multiple times already, and I set it low because I didn't fully understand it. That's I did it just so I could learn, and so I get ten percent of every transaction now going forward forevermore, and so for for you know, music or art starting to use these, these platforms. And again, they're called non-fungible tokens and OpenSea.io and Rarible.io are two, two good ones. Um, I think OpenSea is a little better. Um, you can start putting your stuff up there and it's crazy what's happening in that space right now. Pharrell, if you put something up, you know, just, and you did a limited edition of 10 items, people go nuts. It's just unbelievable. It's a very interesting space. One thing I would bring up there is, is um, you know, my experience in being involved in the blockchain space was that these tokens can be very divisive um, because you have like one token over here, you've got another token over there. People are invested in each. And so, for example, I was a, a you know core Bitcoin developer for um, for the first year and a half. Um, then I joined a company called Ripple. They were working on another token. And so suddenly like people want to talk to me and like, 
coming from like the open source community, coming from the web community, I'd never experienced anything like that. Like, you know, you can be in different projects and they can even be competitive and you're still friends, you know, but in the crypto space, it was a lot more, um, you know, cause, cause there was money at stake. Right. And so people were a lot more aggressive. And so, you know, I always looked at it as like, I want to make payments better. I actually don't care that much about the token part. Um, but, uh, the token still kind of dominates the conversation. So I think that's something to keep in mind whenever you're, you know, bringing investing in, into a conversation, like suddenly it's a lot about the money and, um, and yeah. You know, when there's money involved, everybody gets antsy and excitable and it creates, it definitely creates challenges. And even if you're trying to use it for a good cause, people are going to get upset. So, you know what I would, you know, what I would say to that is you're absolutely right. I think the group that I was speaking to was outside of the people who are interested in currency and how it works and interested in the gray areas to find new opportunities. I mean, the people outside of that spectrum. I mean, the people who are not thinking about it at all, who have never even heard of cryptocurrency. Um, but you would suddenly get their attention when there was something that was purpose driven from the good side and the bad side. That was my point. What gives Bitcoin its value? I'm just I'm listening to y'all. I'm trying to follow, but I'm, I'm listening. It's a store of value. It's kind of like digital gold. Why does gold have value? Why do people have want gold? It's not like jewelry is has some intrinsic value. Gold jewelry has some intrinsic value, right? You know, you if you got a chain and it's gold, you paid a lot because it's gold, right? It's not because of the cost a minute. It's just everybody thinks gold is better than silver. Um, and it's the same with Bitcoin versus Ethereum. It's what people think it's worth. And it's gone from being a currency to an attempt to being a currency to really only being a store of value. Now, what does it have intrinsic value? If you were to ask me that question a year ago, I probably would have said no. I mean, I think blockchain has a lot of value um, as a distributed database application. But um, but what's changed recently is this thing called DeFi, this, um, decentralized finance. And so now everybody that owns Bitcoin or Ethereum, maybe even more so, and to a lesser extent, some of the others, you know, you can be your own financial institution. You could, you can lend, you can borrow, you can share, you can, you know, create applications on it. You can have digital contracts on there. There's no limit to what you can do to it. So now all of a sudden you're looking at being able to really change how banking's done. You know, it's not perfect yet and it's not easy to do or not easy to understand. Just ask Stefan, right? And just quick, Stefan, I had a thousand um, Ethereum locked away in an account for years and I had my seed word, I had my private key and I still couldn't get it, right? Because they had upgraded everything since I'd used my wallet. And so I had to go through all my old passwords and finally found the one that worked to unlock it. And, you know, it it was a lot of money. So this is common for people to lose money in a wallet. Yeah, in the in the in the New York Times article, they estimate there was more than a hundred billion dollars in these locked up wallets. And so like my two hundred million, it's like a tiny, tiny fraction of of a much bigger phenomenon. I get it. Listen, when I heard your story and I thought I was gonna see you, I thought you was gonna look so stressed out, like your hair and shit was gonna be wild. <laughs> and just like I just thought you was gonna be super stressed. You just calm, man, like why are you so calm? Yeah, that's that's probably the number one question I've gotten. It's actually kind of interesting, um, even for me to think about. I think there's sort of the 
easy answer, which is this happened 10 years ago and like time heals a lot of wounds. Um, I think the, but the, the, the bigger thing and it's kind of the deeper answer I think is, um, when it originally happened, I was destroyed. Like I was very much thinking about, you know, I was sort of thinking about like, not so much like the monetary loss, even though that was a huge amount of money for me. Like I was still in debt. I didn't have a job. Like I was very much like, could have used that money for sure. But, um, you know, I wasn't like starving or anything. Yeah. And so, and so, and so that wasn't it. it what was it was this sort of like, what kind of a negligent waste of space, like loses something that important, right? Like why do I even keep on living if I'm that incompetent, you know? And like, especially since I'm a developer and I'm supposed to know technology and I'm supposed to know all this stuff, which to be fair, like that sort of worked against me because I secured it so well that I ended up blocking myself out. May I tell you why this happened to you? Go for it. It's just, it's, it's, it's his reality. And I'm sure he's figured this out by now. This happened to you because if it hadn't, you would not have a story. Like mm. you really live an amazing life and you do amazing things and you're inspiring a lot of people with this story. And as much as they feel like it might be misfortune, you, um, you might be beyond fixed. You're far from broke, right? Or broken, Right. So but this story provides you the opportunity to, you know, to 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 be a platform for why this currency is interesting and why we mm. should all be thinking about this very differently. This is the reason why it happened to you. I it was it. a would you say two hundred and twenty nine or two hundred and twenty four? The same thing. Millions. It changes every day. It's whatever the value of the Bitcoin is. Right. So here's oh. the thing. Whatever it is, it's north of a hundred million very comfortably, right? Yes. That is worthy of a story. If you hadn't have lost it and you would have found it, I think you still would have had a story. But let's yeah. say you would have never lost it, right? Yeah. You'd just be another one of those geniuses that we never got a chance to meet. It's like going outside and and you seeing this comprehensive like ant colony doing this amazing thing. It's like they don't stop to tell you what they're doing. You just got to sort of stand back. And if you're smart enough, you can sort of figure out what they're trying to do. But here the universe has had it that you would have this small little blink of a misfortune so that you could tell us about the bigger picture. I want to react to that because like what you said is exactly spot on. That's why I'm relaxed about it. It's it's sort of like and I give you even more like concrete example, which is, you know, right now I'm running. I'm running my own company, um, which I founded in 2018. And, you know, I am sure Mark will confirm that like running your own company is, is, can be tough at times. Right. And you have ups and downs. And so, you know, I was having a bit of a down moment and that's when out of the blue, Nathaniel from New York times reached out wanting to do the story. And I was like, sure, you know, maybe it helps somebody else feel better about the coins that they lost. Or maybe somebody makes a backup because of the story. So why not? And I also didn't know I was going to be such a big part of it. I thought it was going to be one of 10 examples at the bottom of the article or something like that. And so I agreed to the story. But one thing I completely did not expect is it completely got me out of this rut because thinking about that story and thinking about that moment made all my other problems seem way less significant. It reminded me of why I got into this industry, like all these, the, the, this trying to make financial access better. Um, it also reminded me like how far I've come from, you know, like I said, not having a job, uh, being in debt to now I run a, you know, startup that, you know, it's too early to tell, but it's, it's pretty successful so far. So, um, yeah. Tell people about what you're working on right now, just to, uh, you know, give them some context. 
Well, it's really interesting because you were talking about, you know, could you use crypto to like help artists? And like in some way, that's kind of what the company is about. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll, there's some nuance to it. So basically, um, you know, after being involved with Bitcoin and then I joined a company called Ripple and this entire time I was very much focused on like, how does the payment system work? How do you make it better? Um, being at Ripple was really helpful in that because I got to meet with a lot of banks and payment companies and kind of really get an inside view of how the payment system works. If you're interested, there's an interesting bank, new emerging bank that does like a really, a lot of really amazing social impact work. And I think there's something there if you'd be into it. I'd love for you to have a conversation with the uh, the owner of the of the bank. I'd love to talk to them. I think the one caveat I would say is like you were saying like to talk to them about cryptocurrency, I would say like, I'm not very interested in cryptocurrency anymore, but I'm very interested in like what payment systems and like better interoperability and payments can do for artists. Like that's pretty much what I work on every day. So I'd be super interested to talk about that. Okay. I mean, I'm thinking undocumented workers, but I mean, you know, there's a 50, <laughs> large, 50 yard line there. No, no, no. Like payments for undocumented workers. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, like, in, like from my perspective, it's like financial access, right? That's the thing I'm interested in. And so uh, we're working on it for artists undocumented workers. Um, either way, it's, it's, that's what I'm working on. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. I'm hustling. I mean, there's no way in the world I can <laughs> look at this guy right here who is the shark of all sharks, you know, so much, so much. So he has many tanks. I, there's no way in the world I can just sit <laughs> in front of like a genius like you and not try to figure out how to put a plan behind it. You know, all of us are the product, right? And we're always being advertised to all the time, but we don't really get to monetize our attention. You know, we don't get. So when a migrant worker, even if you're undocumented, even if you're illegal, right, you don't you don't get the benefit of your eyeballs and what you see, even though that makes you transition to being a consumer. And maybe what Stefan's getting at is that, you know, using different types of payment options, you can be rewarded for your time, right? You can be rewarded for your attention. You know, so it's it's the old Napster thing going back in the day, right? Imagine if there were tokens so that anybody who went on to Napster and just downloaded something rather than, you know, everything having to go through a record label um, or going through um, whatever, all the different licensing agencies, they could just use a token that they can earn, you know, by what they see or what they do or, you know, what they pay attention to. And rather than having everything, all the currency always being distributed by your employer, right, or by a bank and trying to get out of that employer bank duopoly, if you will, I think is part of what um, the original goals of cryptocurrency were. And it's really gotten away from that. But there's an opportunity to do more of that. Exactly. I mean, there, there's sort of a saying that's very expensive to be poor. And that's particularly true about financial services. Like, I think the you know if you're if you're low income like from the financial institutions perspective like they are exposed to more risk they are um there, there's there's a huge dynamic where like if bill gates invests with your bank like you can have a whole team making sure that they cater to his every move but for someone who's lower income it's it's difficult for banks to provide a very good service because of the, the margins that they have and so what we're trying to do with this um this idea interledger of like applying the internet protocol um, architecture to payments is to bring down the cost the same way that the internet has brought down the cost for communication. This could bring down the cost for payments. And so suddenly serving these, um, customers that they might not have huge volume, they might not have a lot of money, um, but you can still serve them efficiently if you can do it with a, with a better protocol. So, 
uh, that's kind of the the angle and the hope that we're we're doing. And like right now with uh, the company I started, Coil, um, the first sort of slice um, of that pie that we're uh, tackling is can you use it for content? So if someone puts out content on the internet, um, you know you're going to want to support them. Uh, you might be open to supporting them. You might be willing to pay not to see ads. You might be willing to you know even just pay just because you want to see more of that content. Um, but doing so on a you know for a single article or a single photograph or a minute of a video is going to be prohibitively expensive. And so people try to find workarounds. They um, they use advertising. They sell you data. Um, in some cases, they try to bundle a lot of content together. That's why you get these like massive content platforms like Netflix and so on. Um, but we think that there's a way to do it where it is just built into how the web works. Like you go to a website, your browser pays the website. And that's, that's kind of what we're, what we're pursuing right now. Mark, you were talking about uh, the tokens and stuff. Do you think that'll ever happen in pro sports? On one hand, like um, Spencer Dinwiddie wanted to um, securitize his contract and let people um, participate with him on his future contracts. The, the challenge is because it's built on a contract, on a traditional written contract, it's much more difficult. But I, it's not inconceivable, and it's going to be a good 10 years, maybe longer, where they have these, you know, Ethereum is built on contracts, digital contracts. And so it, it's not inconceivable that we'll, we'll get more to those because to Stefan's point, I think where he's trying to get to is fr- friction fee, friction-free um, transactions, right? No matter what they are, no matter what you're able to sell, we always have, you know, for a long time, we went to paper and banks, and then we went to ACH, did some digital transactions, but even those are expensive. And it's too expensive for poor people to, to work with the bank, whether you're a business or an individual. And so I think whether it's pro sports or anything else for that matter, you can start to pay people in microtransactions um, that allow them to start accumulating some things of value. And so even though it may be difficult um, in professional sports to allow people to share in the upside of a player, I think music and art for sure, but music most likely is where you're really going to start to see the next jump because you can start to separate a beat. You can start to separate the instrumentals. You can start to separate the voice. You can separate, you know, all the different participants because, you know, you know, everybody owns a song these days and there's so many different players and so hard to reward people, you know, I think that's those types of impacts um, with these contracts is the first place you're going to see it. Yeah. I mean, if they could get publishing and being able to pay people on the blockchain, that would be a huge win for the music industry. Like whoever figures that out. They're working on it. And there's a thing called EtherScan. I don't know if you're familiar with it, where, you know, allows you just to look at a, a blockchain, right? And there's equivalents in all the different blockchains. But you get to see the entire history of everything that's been processed or transacted. And so there's no BS coming from a record label or a publisher. You get to know specifically exactly what transactions took place. And that that's a huge game changer. And so, you know, it's something that needs to happen across all of entertainment. I mean, you know, you and I have done a movie together, a TV show together, and we get the, the royalties, right? that come in $2.35 to, you know, for it running here in, in Norway and, you know, yeah. 62 cents for running there. And that's just totally ridiculous, right? And there's there's a way to automate all of that down, you know, through all the different people involved in publishing, et cetera. 
and it's coming and people are working on it. Um, it's just not here yet. Pharrell, are you buying Bitcoin now? Uh, no, but I mean, you know, <laughs> why not, bro? You still don't. I'm, I, I'm not. Scott has been asking me this for like the last. I told I told Pharrell like two, three years ago, maybe even four years ago. I was like, just put a hundred thousand dollars in in Bitcoin right now and never look back. He did. I would just say, you know, at the end of the day, oh, sir, Lord. you must know no, man. that the universe knew that you needed to tell a story. And fortunately for you, no. this was the story. And it doesn't mean that this is the end of it. No. It doesn't mean it's the end of it. You may get it, right? But the point is, is for you to tell the story enough time, enough times for, you know, people like us to pay attention and, and realize that there is another way. And I also love everything that don't don't think it's lost on me. The other things that you're talking about is making sure that, you know, finance is accessible to people in, in different ways. Like, I think that's something that um, you've said it a couple of times here, but I kind of I want you to touch on that some more whenever you get a moment. But I just wanted to go <laughs> back to the fact that, listen, yeah. it's not a mistake it's that not, you lost this code and that you're going to find it. But in the interim, so many people, because of your story, are learning about this. Like Scott said, if I would have listened to him like three, four years ago, I mean, 100,000 share. I mean, yeah. what would that be right now? What would that be, Scott? A lot. <laughs> a lot. I think it was, at, lot. it was at 12 when I told you to buy it, or 11. 11,000 or $11? No, no, no. When I told him to buy it, it was, uh, it was like in between 9 and 11,000. Okay. Listen, let's contact NASA, man. <laughs> I want to tell you some of the stories of like the, the, the people. Uh, yeah, that's what I want to hear. Kind of the things they yeah, said. Yeah. yeah. Number one suggestion by far, like by a landslide, I would say like 90 plus percent of people have reached out, suggested hypnosis. Basically sit down, oh. get hypnotized. <laughs> it might work. What, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, if as far as like the cost of these different ideas, like that's one of the lowest ones, you know, like that's pretty, pretty easy to try. Mm. Um, and honestly, like the, the biggest takeaway that I had from like the different suggestions was like, man, we live in a beautiful, colorful, amazing world. Like people have reached out saying, you know, chant this Buddhist mantra or go see this psychic medium. Like there's somebody who uh, reached out to me. <laughs> Um, saying that they're an intuitive and they know the password and they can just tell me and like I, I should just show up and as long as I <laughs> promise you some of the big ones, I'll just tell it to me. And so <laughs> I don't know. I just and and a lot of people honestly, a lot of people have also just reached out saying like, hey, like I, I heard your story, like I lost the combination of family safe a couple years back and that was such a big thing and like I, I completely understand and like people just expressing their sympathy was also pretty amazing to see. So. Um, I will probably try a couple of those ideas. I think the one that has the best chance of success was uh, some people reached out who are in the space of what's called uh, microcontroller reverse engineering. So they basically, their whole thing is they break into chips, like what I was describing, so the Mission Impossible on nanoscale. And so I'm in touch with a couple of people now which who I think can do it. The problem is it is expensive and it's sort of no guarantee of success. And if it doesn't work, then, well, I just dug myself a deeper hole, so... You wait until Bitcoin, you know, hopefully gets up a lot higher, right? And then you put it out to auction and let someone bid 
on taking mm-hmm. it over. But there's always somebody who thinks they're smarter than the problem. <laughs> always. And it's just it's just like one of those um, deep sea um, lost treasure hunters. You know, they think they can solve anything. And so at some point, you'll be able to put it out there for auction and somebody will give you tens of millions of dollars for that shot to crack it mm. when it's worth hundreds of millions or a billion dollars. So here's my question to you. Is it a thing where if someone cracked it and showed you, would you recognize it? Would you go, oh, shit, there it is. Yeah. Because you said it was really long, but I don't know if it's, there were like no. ever any elements. I said probably like QX dash period. Yeah, there's, no, there's no way. <laughs> this is like a okay. piece of paper I looked at 10 years ago for two seconds. Like even with hypnosis, I think it's a bit optimistic. Yeah, uh, I, I would try the hypnosis. I would do the the mantra. I would cl- I would climb to the temple, the top of the temple, talk to the Buddhists or whoever the man. <laughs> I would I would do it all, man. I, man. I'm telling you, NASA can do it. You know, a lot of people still said like you should try to recover it. You should, and like a lot of this is a big time investment. And so I could go on this big mission, like travel the world, talk to all these experts, go to all these labs, spend a bunch of money trying to recover these coins. But the opportunity cost. The opportunity cost is I would be abandoning my company. I would be abandoning my mission, which is making payments better. Um, and I feel like I'm having a huge impact on the world with the work that I'm doing. And so I would be abandoning all of that to chase some treasure. Yes. You realize that like the greater purpose here is for you to educate people. And and your story is now not only an opportunity to have a platform, but it's a platform in itself. The yes. key to the to where it wherever it let's let's pretend it was a safe, right? The key to the safe, okay. he already has. He's delivering it now. He's handing these keys to everybody else. Right now, wherever the key is, the, the iron key is like in his house somewhere. He ain't even thinking about it. No, the it's iron not in my house. Is the it fact. is not in my house. <laughs> not break into my house looking for it, please. <laughs> yeah. It's not yeah. nowhere near my house. It's, it's <laughs> in the Pentagon. The iron key is in the Pentagon. No, look, the, iron, anybody, <laughs> the iron key. Is what he's doing right now. I know, bro. Hold on. I That's get what it. You're he just gave us the key. Yes, major keys. I understand. That's it. But what I'm saying is this. I'm, I'm going to leave. It's it. the money. It's not just the money. He's doing what you're saying. Right. He's doing it. Right. He ain't thinking about so it. So forget the money and then it will come to him. Maybe. No, that's the way it works, bro. This has been 10 years. No, what he had what? eight tries already. I have a better, I have a better question. Go ahead. If you found the money, if you found the password and had the money, what would you do with it now? That is a good question. Um, I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I think after you know 10 years of consideration, my conclusion is don't think about how you're going to spend money you don't have. It's not a healthy thing. Um, I think I, the way I look at it is if, if I manage to recover it, it'll be a huge windfall. Um, if I look at how I've reacted to past successes and, and getting money like for example, when I started my company, I was able to get funding and we started a project called Grant for the Web where we we're giving a good chunk of that money away. Um, so probably will look like something like that, but I don't want to make concrete plans if I don't know if I'm going to actually have that money or not. I wanted to tell Mark... Um, I uh, I made a bet with my friend. I don't know if this is insider trading or not, but I made a bet with my <laughs> friend at the beginning of last year that the Mavericks would have a better record over two seasons than the Brooklyn Nets. Well, this season's so crazy, it's hard to say, right? It just depends on who has COVID and who doesn't anymore, right? But um, 
long term, you're on the you're on the right side of history there. <laughs> mm. I believe. I think that we're going to have a better record. I, I think the Mavs. I think we got Luca. We got KP. Man, Luca is incredible. Oh, you, I God. mean, you have the most exciting player in the NBA, and who yeah, has the most promise? And he's such a good dude, too, man. He's just such a good dude, man. He's mature for his age, man. He he knows what's at stake, and he knows he's got to work, and he knows he's got a job he's got to do. And he wants to be the greatest, you know? Lots of people got talent, um, and you see it in art, music, and sports. People with talent but aren't willing to do the work. Luca's got the talent, and he's willing to do the work, and he's a good kid, man. You know, when you want to talk about helping people, I, I've never seen anybody that goes out of his way every game, every city, you know, to, to try to help people out. So he, he's got a good heart, good soul, too. So I, I just want to say to you, Mark, like, you know, we met each other a couple times. We had lunch that day at I want to say it was maybe an NFL brunch or whatever. Yeah. Um, and we had a very spirited conversation. Right. I don't know if this was a year ago or two years ago because it's been such a blur. But I, I, I just think that like, you know, you and I talked about this, this, this term owner, right? Like team owners. So I'm an American. I, I, I love my country based on our progress and I really love our untapped potential. But then you and I were having this spirited tug of war of trying to figure out what the language was. And we started out one way. And by right. the time we left, you said to me, you said, you know, Pharrell, this is a good conversation. I'm going to go off and think about this. And I am not pushing you to come up with a term as governor or, you know, because there's a bunch of t uh, uh, names that are floating around um, within the, you know, within the league as to what to call it. Or maybe the conversations cooled down. But I guess in the last two years, there was a there was a debate about what what it could be called. And I'm not asking you to, to, to have that language right now. I, I just want to point out to you that you didn't talk like an owner. You didn't talk like a man who owned human beings or their services, right? There's a lot of people who like serve their companies. And I'm not just talking about sports franchise. I'm just talking about regular, like everyday nine to fives, Right. But yet and still, the CEO, the COO, and all the C-suite management, they don't refer to them as owning their services. And I'm not saying that that's what you do. I am actually doing the opposite. I'm saying, dude, if you just talk, if you just realize the way that you were talking about that young man and like how you, how you regard him as a human being and how you see him. And I, I mean, your face just lit up. I mean, you're smiling right now. Like, I just want to point out to you that the word owner doesn't match that energy that you have. The other thing you don't know is like immediately after that conversation, I called or emailed our, our folks at the Mavs and I said, every reference to with my name and the word owner anywhere in our website or literature, it's got to go. And I didn't even put in wow. governor. I proprietor, right? Because that was the only thing I can come up with. And you were like, no, nah, that's not there. And no lie, I, I'm just not smart enough to come up with something better. It's okay. But, but look, the fact that you changed it, bro, that's the huge. fact that you changed it. And I just wanted to say that to you. I just wanted to say, look, you know, I never forgot our conversation. I really took it to heart. I'm not a, I'm not an athlete, right? But I have respect for them. 
I don't know a lot about their sports and their, you know, their games, but I know the, 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 the amazing leaders when I see them. No one just gets to be the best, right? They bust their ass to be the best. And when you see somebody who's gone on that mission and is either on that course to get there, if they, they stay tuned to their mission where they've made it like LeBron and Michael Kobe, right? You can't help, but just feel, you know, feel the joy in what they've accomplished. My guy, that's what makes you special. The fact that you've thought about this and that on that level, trust me, it means a whole lot. It means a whole lot. And by the way, if anybody listening to this podcast, like has any idea of what, you know, not a team owner, like we, if we could, you know, another name for what it is, you know, proprietor is kind of still kind of in that world, but at least like you see people who are in this position, um, you know, who are owners of a franchise, not owners of, of human beings and not owners of their services, especially as it pertains to a team, but like owners of a franchise, like what could we replace that word with? What's that word? I want to throw something out there, which is, you know, maybe the thing you need to change is not the owner part, but the team part. Like what you own is some company that people happen to interface with and interact with. You don't own the people, right? Like you own the company. The only hitch with that is that there are a lot of like, you know, athletes who would probably still want to use the term player because player just, you know, play and that just, that just give them a different thing. But you're right. I mean, they could just be athletes. Yeah, I mean, like, what, what do you own? You, you don't, like, to your point, you don't own the people. You own some database entry. You own some paperwork, you know. I just think I would just, I would just say to that, you know, mm. a player is only as good as he is in his peak years. And that's a lot like what it was like for us as, uh, you know, well, my, you know, uh, ascendants. They were only as good as they were in their peak years of working and earning. And so for us... We just have like a lot of like, you know, uh, post-traumatic, like, I would say, um, I don't even want to say slavery as much as I would just say like, uh, you know, working syndrome in that sense. Um, like there's so many systemic disadvantages and blockages that have been put in our way that it makes us sensitive when we talk about like terms like owner. The thing about being white, we don't talk about race, you know, and I hadn't really listened a lot. And, and, and I've said this before, white people don't talk about race at all. You know, we don't sit around the dinner table and talk about race. It's not a comfortable. You never subject. needed to. Yeah, exactly right. And so <laughs> what I got from our conversation more than anything was, you know what, I'm not the right person to come up with it. I'll try Right. Yeah. But, but it's not me, we're trying to make comfortable. Right. We're, it's not me that is feeling like something's wrong. And you've yeah. got to talk to people who feel something's wrong in order to get the right answer. And so that's amazing. That's why, yeah. That's why you got to listen. And it, it's a process. Right. It doesn't happen fast enough, but it's a process. No, listen, listen. I thank God for people like you. Um, it's not that you're perfect you know, without flaw. It's that you are willing to see that there's a possibility that you might not be privy. You might not be abreast. It's like you said, you don't talk about race at the table because fish don't talk about water either. And so, you know, when you have people like you, Mark, who are, you know, curious and willing to do the work and willing to do the exploration, I just wanted to give, I just wanted to just point that out, you know, and just to hear you talk about this young man, you know, like we need more of that. 
appreciate That's it. That's all. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. This was a, an amazing episode. And uh, well, yeah, we should definitely try and figure out a uh, part two. This was a great episode. Subscribe to Other Tone wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram. New episodes drop every Monday. Other Tone is hosted by Pharrell Williams, Fam Lay, and Scott Venner. Executive producers are Pharrell Williams, Scott Venner, and Moses Shoyola. Engineers are Mike Larson and Mike Hernandez. Theme music is by Thundercat. Other Tone is produced in collaboration with the team at Gilded Audio, Ivana Tucker, Whitney Donaldson, and Nick Dooley. 